When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lauren, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so for people that um, maybe perhaps aren't familiar with your content, as a first-time viewer, how would you describe the type of content that you're putting out? Like, what, What's kind of your main focus for your channels? And I, I know you've got multiple, but give us a kind of an overview here. Sure. Well, I talk a lot about politics, but also social commentary and pop culture. Uh, I definitely come from things from more of a conservative perspective. And uh, what I found frustrating about the conservative movement is that for the longest time, they've really ignored pop culture and social issues, current events, and just stuck to policy. And let's talk about lower taxes. And don't get me wrong, I like that too. But I, I try to have a more holistic approach to my commentary. So we talk about a little bit of everything, actually. Got it. So you, you were a conservative, but you went to USC. What was that like? That's in the, in, the, in California, right? Yeah. So it's <laughs> fun. Um, I went to USC. How old was I? That was probably almost like 10 years ago. And don't do any math on you know my age in relation to that. But I'm Asian, I so I kind of have to do the math really quickly there. <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like things were different back then. I mean, don't get me wrong campus of what 65,000 and there were like 10 people at the college Republicans meeting. Um, but we never got, you know, um, protested or anything like that. And, uh, you know, I, I was one of the few, I guess, right wing people in a lot of my classes, especially my political science classes. But, um, you know, surprisingly enough, I, I didn't face any hostility or anything like that. But uh, with college campuses nowadays, I feel like the experience is quite different. And I, I am thankful that I I studied when I did because I, I think um, some people have a hard time now when their their opinions don't really fit in with the rest of their peers or their professors. Oh, yeah. It's like it's a death sentence now with things that are happening in college. I mean, you can't say anything. I mean, I know standard comedians are just refusing to go despite how much money that the universities are willing to pay. They're not willing to perform at these uh, universities because just any little thing that you would say, you get canceled now since everyone's filming as well. It's just, it's kind of impossible to speak your mind these days a little bit, but um, yeah. Was it, was it a little bit difficult? Like trying to, were you vocal about your stance in terms of the conservative status when you were in college as well? And, and how did that stand with some of your peers? I mean, I wasn't as vocal as I am now because I guess it would be hard to be since now talking about politics is all I do. But I know uh, I had a comparative politics class where my professor was actually a self-described Marxist. But again, I was fairly impressed because he didn't he didn't hide his own political views, which I think, you know, some people might consider problematic in and of itself. But he never um, made me afraid to voice my own opinions or to ask questions. And I I. I really respected him for that. And like I was saying, I think there was only maybe one person from my time there who I remember kind of trying to ostracize me or no longer wanting to be my friend once he found out that I was, uh, you know, doing all these things with the college Republicans and stuff like that. 
It's not the same now, though. Um, and I'm not I think there's several things that have contributed to this the shift in like willingness to converse with people with different opinions. I think, um, you know, being conservative now has really a lot of people try to link it with just outright being racist or sexist, bigoted, xenophobic in ways that, yes, were happening 10 years ago, but to a much lesser extent. And now it's gotten to the point where, I mean, I, I haven't spoken at a college campus in several years, but the last time I did, uh, you know, there were people protesting, little old me. Um, you know, essentially it became just a, a huge session for them to air all of their grievances against conservatives and stuff like that. And it was just a very different environment, thankfully, than the one that I had studied in. Yeah, and it's for sure there is some some perceptions when people talk about conservatives, especially obviously coming in from, you know, places like California or New York. But if, if all of these things are, were happening 10 years ago, which much more severe than now, what, why do you think it is now these days that people are having such a vocal opinion around, you know, this divide? I've thought a lot about that, and it's hard to attribute it specifically to one thing, but I, I would say that social media probably has has played a pretty big role. I mean, if you look at internet discourse, I mean, the most outrageous headlines always get the most clicks, which is natural, and uh, heck, I'm on YouTube, I love myself a catchy headline as much mm -hmm. as the next person. But when we see these sensationalized stories and we don't see, you know, the average views of the average person or whatever, then it's very easy to feed into this like echo chamber and kind of, um, you know, get used to the escalating rhetoric. And I think, you know, if you are a college student who very likely doesn't have any conservative friends or family members or professors and all you see is people calling others Nazis and bigots or whatever online without actually hearing from the people themselves, then I think it would be very easy to fall into a system where you actually believe that that's true. And, you know, you, you start to buy into the idea that it's us versus them. And same goes for, uh, you know, Republicans and conservatives on the other side of that too. Echo, ch echo chambers are everywhere nowadays, unfortunately. And I think it would have been a lot harder without things like Twitter and Facebook to kind of like for these different groups to radicalize each other. Because, I mean, the, the way we're operating right now, it is so easy to cut yourself off from the entire other side of politics. Yeah. I mean, speaking of a divide, uh, obviously, you've probably seen kind of the, the attacks, I guess, for lack of a better word, around, um, you know, Asian Americans that are happening in San Francisco to New York. What are your thoughts on like the xenophobia that is happening in America? Well, it's frustrating. And, you know, I'm I'm half Chinese. I don't really look at, though, but my dad is a little old Chinese man. And when I, you know, see people being attacked for being Asian, you know, part of me does think, oh, gosh, like, would that happen to my dad if you were walking in New York or San Francisco? Um, and it is it, it's kind of interesting how that whole the, the xenophobia has really played out against Asians, because I think it's a combination of things right now. I mean, you have coronavirus, which, you know, because of its potential origins, a lot of people are associating, hey, maybe if you're Asian, you're more likely to get it, in which case going up to them and physically assaulting them is probably the last thing you would want to do if you actually are scared of getting corona, but that's its own thing. Um, and then, you know, you also have these increasing political tensions with China. And so it's, 
it's it's hard and it's it's trying to get people to see the difference between you know criticizing for example the chinese government versus assuming that every asian person you see walking down the street who very likely may not even be chinese is part of that regime uh you know there's a difference between saying oh hey uh you know this disease might have its roots here versus saying, oh, that means every Chinese person is probably more likely to get it. And I think because as a culture, we've bought more into identity politics and racial politics than we have ever before, at least in my generation, um, you know, those distinctions between groups and individuals, they're getting harder and harder to make. And I think, you know, unfortunately, this is the one of the many downsides, I think, of really buying into those group and identity politics is that, you know, when it's when it's good for you, you might think, all right, I, you know, I have all of these special interests, but when it's bad, it affects everyone in your group, as we're seeing now for Asian Americans. Yeah. The most frustrating part is the fact that these people are targeting people that can't defend themselves, right? right. I mean, if you're, if you're talking about, you know, talking about like 60 year old women, six, seven year old women, it's just like so frustrating that, um, that these things are happening. I mean, where do you see this going in the next two to three years if this was to keep up? I mean, how, how are we supposed to, in your opinion, kind of fight through this or or work through it? Well, I think like you said, it's so frustrating to see how many of these attacks are focused on the elderly. I mean, I think you have to be a bad person regardless to just go and randomly start assaulting someone. Um, But you throw on top of that the whole age issue and it's like, my goodness, like how were you raised that you think this is okay? But uh, I think over the past four years, we've seen an escalation in political violence, if I can say, you know, um, riots and protests have steadily increased in severity. And it seems like for a lot of the lot of the people who are perpetrating these acts, there's been no consequences. So I think, unfortunately, unless people start seeing that, yeah, there's rule of law, you can't just go around, uh, you know, breaking windows or assaulting people, you know, whether you're doing it for the left wing or right wing reasons, you, you cannot, you will be held accountable, I think, unless we start kind of clamping down on these attacks, they're going to keep happening as people yeah. see that there's no consequences. Now, I, I know you don't look uh, obviously like full Asian because as you mentioned, but did you deal with racial stereotypes growing up? Uh, I've seen like some, I've got, I've got a lot of half Asian friends, but some of them, they sometimes when they're younger, they look a lot more Asian and then up to their 20s or whatever it might be, they they end up kind of changing form. I don't know if that was the same case for you, but did you deal with a lot of racial stereotypes growing up and, and how did you deal with that? Well, it's funny. I actually, I find I did look more Asian when I was younger. I don't know if you can tell, but I, I now have like a, a nose bridge, but when I was little, that wasn't there. Um, and so I guess my features were a little bit more Asian looking, but I actually grew up in Hong Kong. Um, so me looking Asian, I guess I would have fit in more than me looking um, Eurasian, but in Hong Kong, you know, it's not, and other places I've lived, like Singapore, it's not uncommon to be mixed, to have one parent who's Caucasian and one parent who is Asian. And actually, I didn't really ever put much stock into, you know, even thinking about my racial identity before I moved to the US and Canada, where it was kind of more unusual, um, especially in in the US. I know I was kind of, I almost had a bit of an identity crisis because, you know, I there were a lot of like things that I missed from home, you know, um, like Chinatowns and the food and things that I would maybe try to go to. But then people would look at me as if I was an outsider, um, mm. whereas in Hong Kong, it's 
very you're it's very multicultural in terms of the expat community there's a lot of mixed people i never felt that um kind of almost being judged to be not white enough but also not asian enough so that was that was kind of strange yeah we, we've had anna Kana on the show that she had a very similar experience she's half japanese and half I guess she's got a mixture of that on the on that side of things, but yeah, it's just not being able to be able to fit in onto the Asian side because you don't look Asian enough, and then from the other side, it's it's you're I guess more treated as as an Asian and uh, more of an outsider in that case, depending on you know where you live. But um, that's cool though. How, how long were you born in Hong Kong and you grew up there for until up to your teens in Singapore as well? Um, so I was actually born in Canada, but I left for Hong Kong with my parents, of course, when I was a baby. I stayed there until I was about 10 or 11. Um, then we moved to Shanghai. And after that, uh, London and then Singapore, we moved quite a bit because of my parents' jobs. And then I eventually ended up coming to the U.S. for school. And it it's kind of interesting because I have um, a lot of, well, not a lot of, but I I have some Asian friends who are, you know, American born or Canadian born, and they've never been to Asia at all. Mm. Um, and it's, it has frustrated me at some points, them being treated as more Asian when like, they've literally never into, even been to Asia, but me who who's grown up there, who's lived there, because I'm half white, um, you know, kind of getting treated like, oh, but you're a white person. It's like, well, you've never actually been to China or Hong Kong. And um, I mean, even I've, you know, I've spoken out against the idea of ethno-nationalism. Um, maybe like four years ago, the alt-right was a way bigger presence on the internet than they are now. And I would I would have people say, it's like, well, you're being hypocritical by saying that, uh, you know, the U.S. shouldn't be only for white people because you still identify with being from Asia, even though you're half white, it's like, no, I'm not identifying with it just because of the way I look. Like I, I grew up there. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm from there. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely shaped the way I've been treated in certain situations and the way my political views have formed, I think. No, for sure. I mean, I grew up in Korea. I was born in Korea until I was seven, moved to Canada, and then basically didn't live in Asia until, uh, for, for, since I was seven. And, right. I certainly feel more Western. Like I, I don't feel my identity, certainly obviously physically Korean, but I think in English, uh, obviously like I'm, I have certain views that are much more Western and right. it's, yeah, it, it is kind of crazy to think that people are treating you differently just because of your physical appearance. I mean, I guess it kind of makes sense since they don't know a lot about you, but do you feel more a certain way or is it like a divide for you when you're thinking about your identity now? I know you had like an identity crisis when you were young. Yeah, well, I think um, politically, I'm definitely more Western. And I would attribute that to even when I was in Asia, I was going to you know American school. So I grew up with more of a, a Western focused curriculum. But I think one of the differences where I do definitely identify more with my Asian side, side is when it comes to like relationships and family matters. Um, you know, growing up with an Asian father in Asia is, I, I think, a, for, for most people, a very different experience than if you had, had grown up with like a Western father in the West. And that extends to, a, you know, schoolwork, dating, uh, you know, just how I expect marriage to go. To. Like, I, I kind of did the traditional Asian thing where it's like, I lived with my parents until I got married and then moved in with my husband, yeah, um, which is and, you know, even out throughout school, which is not a, a common thing among my Western friends. But 
for me, it's like whatever, you know, even living at home throughout college. Um, and I fully expect my parents to move in with me when they get older. And that was something that I had to kind of break to my like then fiance at the time, like, by the way, yeah. I know we're married, <laughs> but yeah, it's too late. <laughs> Uh, pretty much. Um, yeah. And I think that that family closeness or even the idea of like an honor shame culture is something that I'm much more um, I, I, I think I put more stock into than maybe how Westerners operate. And, um, you know, seeing how Western culture has kind of evolved with the way that young people behave and things like that, it's really made me um kind of miss my upbringing the way I was raised in Asia. And, um, you know, right now I'm actually trying to figure out like, how can I provide more structure and discipline to a child's upbringing in a world like in America or Canada, where it seems like there's increasingly uh, less and less of that. Yeah. How do you think about that? Do you already have a newborn on its no. way or? Yeah. So hopefully that'll be coming soon. But I mean, I've been looking into things like homeschooling and different private schools and more closely knit communities because I mean it's it's just a, a totally different experience and um, you know we we look at a lot of the issues that kind of plague teens in western countries whether that's like drinking drugs or uh, you know having sex really really young and it's it's not to say that that doesn't happen in Asia because of course it it does uh, or even you know dropping out of school but it's like the rates of that are so much less like it's way way less common I know I was exposed to so many things that I had never even you know heard of kind of when I switched over to school um, in in London and uh, you know I, I don't it's not that I want to kind of like shelter my kids, but I, I don't want to introduce them or have them be introduced to things before they're old enough to understand how serious they might be or the right way to interact with them. And I mean, yeah, we're looking more and more at homeschooling because it's it's a scary time to be trying to raise kids right now. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's, it may not be it may actually be a good idea just because, you know, a child's brain at that age is so heavily influenced that sometimes it's hard to rewire that after a certain age you know just trying to imagine trying at our age trying to break habits that you could easily reform when you were 15 or 16 yeah it's a huge huge deal um what was living in singapore like i've always been fascinated by that country just because of this like perfect utopian world yet at the same time you have this insane death penalty of like you know small things that maybe are legal, you know, like two ounces of weed in Canada, obviously. Uh, what was that like? Um, you know, I was, I think I was around 15, 14 or 15 when I was living there. So I definitely wasn't, you know, as keyed into the, I guess, political reality of Singapore, which I've heard be described as a benevolent dictatorship. And uh, but I know that from my own experience, it was a wonderful place to live, especially at my age, like I was 15, where you're starting to kind of want to go places with your friends. And I know that my parents, they could let me stay out you know, until late at night and not worry about my safety, because Singapore is a very, very safe place. And, you know, it's um, multicultural there, you know, Chinese people, um, Indian people, uh, Malaysian people, Indonesian people all living together. But there's, you know, the Singaporean nationalism is enough that, you know, they're unified in their Singaporeanness, which I think is actually a really, really beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I love the Singaporean people. I haven't been back in quite a while now and I would love to visit again. 
But, you know, um, now that I'm older, I, I realize that there's also a darker side of the country. Um, you know, I'm friends with Melissa Chen, who has been she's a Singaporean uh, writer, if people aren't familiar with her, who's in the States. And she's, you know, been very outspoken about criticizing the government there. And, you know, there uh, there are things like blasphemy laws in Singapore, which coming from a Western perspective seems uh, hard to imagine. But that that is the reality. Um but yeah, I mean, overall, my my experience with Singapore was a very positive one. I love the weather. I love the food and I would love to go back someday. Yeah, with, with Singapore, just given how uh, much much of a third world that they, they started with, you know, when they when they were first founded, uh, I forgot what the president is. is it Lee, Lee Kuan Yew, the, the first the first like founding president of Singapore who really had to uh, do some drastic things to set certain things that certainly worked at that time. Obviously, you know, you certain you need certain leaders for, you know, there's wartime leaders and then there's like peacetime leaders. And he was certainly like that wartime leader. But I think some of those things just kind of been ingrained into the culture and the, the regulations within Singapore that uh, you know, there's certainly a, a dark side to it. I think there was like a, a controversial statement that he said something around like Islam, Islamic people not fitting into the culture within uh, Singapore. Like he was okay with every other religion except for um, the Islams. And, and he, I think he like, he took that back eventually, but it was still out there. It, yeah. was, it was like a very controversial statement. I don't know if you've heard about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't heard about that particularly, but I, I have heard about, um, you know, people being charged with uh, violating blasphemy laws in Singapore for talking uh, about the Quran and criticizing it. So, I mean, it seems like it's almost come full circle. First, you're criticizing Islam as leader, and now your nation is like protecting criticism, protecting Islam from criticism. But yeah, it's um, it's definitely very interesting how the, the politics of Singapore have, I mean, yeah, I mean, have kind of They've they've been very authoritarian, but if you if you look now, they don't have a lot of the same social fractions that let's say the U.S. does. So it's it's kind of interesting to and but they're I would say more diverse as a country. So it's in what I way mean, are they more diverse? You think? I think just like racially, they're they're more diverse than the United States, and really? also in terms of like background, because you're not just saying oh you look different, right? There are people who are from actually from Indonesia. There are more people who are actually from Malaysia are now in Singapore. So it's it's not just like this superficial racial diversity. It's like it's also different cultures. It's different religions. Um, but like I said, there's that such a strong identity of being Singaporean that at least, you know, they they can share in that. Um, and, you know, when I when I look at the US and Canada, it feels like we're so fractured in so many ways, not just politically, but also uh, by by race. And, uh, you know, a lot of times um, by language in Canada. Uh, even in the United States as well. And, you know, so I, I look at Singapore and I think we have something to learn from them. I'm not saying that their government is perfect or something to be emulated, but there's a, I guess, uh, a unity there that I appreciate. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I agree with there with Canada, at least for Toronto. You and I both lived in Montreal, living in Montreal now. Do you feel that it's as strong in Canada per se? Like, I think Toronto is the most multicultural city in the world. I never felt yeah. that. Oh. Yeah, go ahead. 
Toronto definitely is. Um, when was the last time you lived in Montreal? Because I know they, it's definitely changed in the past five years. Has it? Okay. I lived there in yeah. this summer just for three months. Um, I was in Vancouver and then flew to Montreal for like three months. Um, but obviously it was Corona. So I didn't, I didn't exactly go out, yeah. right? So I didn't get a certain sense. But how did it change over the last five years? I mean, well, immigration has um, changed a lot of, I, I guess, like the the social issues. Um, you know, it's not just English now that is kind of like the other language in Quebec that the Quebecois don't really like. And for people who aren't familiar with the politics of Quebec who are listening, it's it's its own basket case of <laughs> issues. Uh, it's like one of the few places on the planet that has language laws. I think in one of my political science classes in universities, uh, when we were talking about language laws, the two examples they had were uh, post-Soviet Ukraine and also Quebec. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, you can't have signs in English in Quebec because they want to protect the French language. Um, now they're even talking about limiting the number of um, students who can go to English college because they want more people speaking French. Um, and now because of this new wave of immigrants who have come in, a lot of whom speak neither English nor French, the whole focus and push for assimilation is more to teach them French. So um, and also Quebec has its own preferences for immigrants. Um, they prefer ones who speak French versus ones who speak English. And so we have a quite a substantial, um, you know, Haitian population because they they speak a, a French and sometimes Creole that's, you know, easier to learn the Quebecois than if you're coming into it with no French at all. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely something that if you, you know, if you kind of live downtown, you you see a lot, you know, there are these cultural ghettos forming, whereas when my parents were living here, that wasn't the case. Yeah. Also, Quebecois French, like, come on, do we really need to preserve that? <laughs> it's not the prettiest I, sounding yeah, language. I, do you speak French? No. Yeah, I do speak French. I mean, it's not, uh, I, I definitely couldn't do my videos in French, but, it, you know, um, retail, just day-to-day -day life, it's fine. But no, I agree. It's uh, not the most, not the prettiest language. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's a complication on its own. So when you, um, when you lived in Hong Kong and you moved over to London, you said, after living in Asia for what, like 15 years, I guess? No. 17 yeah, like years, 14, or 14 15 yeah. years. I mean, that's like, an, uh, that's an entire chapter in your entire life, right? That's, it shapes so much of who you are, what your beliefs are in your, and you know, who your identity is. Did you, what was some of the things that was like a culture shock for you coming into, I guess, more of the Western world? Um, it was a huge culture shock. Uh, it I, 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 I remember there were just so many things like I wasn't used to only having English television at that time. It was like a big treat because when I was growing up in Hong Kong, there was satellite, but we didn't have it. And so, you know, there were like two English channels. And then after I think it was like seven or something, they were only in Chinese. So it's like, really, you get like one and a half English channels. Yeah. Um, so it was very strange. You know, it was being exposed to all this different candy at the time. And, um, you know, and not just that, but when I went to the U.K., I, I was familiar with Western culture. I, you know, I went to American schools and my, my parents are Canadian, but that's very different from British culture in and of itself. And I remember I was, we were moving in and I was uh, alone at home one day, just hanging out. And then someone came in the front door and said, Hey, are your parents here? They just came in. They didn't knock. They just entered the door. And I was so 
shocked and confused. And it's like, that's not okay is what I was thinking. But the guy was being so nonchalant and polite about it. I was like, but maybe it's okay. And yeah, when in England and we were in Surrey, so maybe it was more like small town England, people would just come in our house. Like our neighbors would just come in our house. And that was this, like, I, I didn't. And it's funny. I like, being Canadian, I'm also like, well, I don't want to be rude, but also why are you in my house? So it was, yeah, there, there, there was a lot of that. And, um, you know, not just that, but also like coming from, um, you know, these Asian cities where it's, it's very urban to Surrey where you're probably not, it's just a different vibe, but at the same time, it's like more quiet, but more dangerous. That was very strange to me. Mm. Um, and it was also strange. Yeah. Like I said, having everything being being in English, but uh, it was it was a good experience. And I, I think people maybe in the US and Canada don't appreciate how different British culture is than American or Canadian culture. Just yeah. because we speak the same language, it doesn't mean it's the same. Yeah, it's completely different. Um, yeah. What was the was the dating scene also different for you when you were going coming from Asia into the UK? Maybe the UK is. Again, it's very different than the U.S. in terms of the dating scene, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, well, I was throughout high school not doing a lot of dating. I'll just be up front. But I remember that I boys seemed more interested in me in Asia than they did in the U.K. for sure. For sure, for sure, for sure. Whoa, why is that? I don't know. Um, I mean, of course, like there are different standards of beauty in different cultures. That's normal. Um, and it's the same thing. Like even now when I like go back to Asia, I find I get a lot more male attention than any time that I'm in like the U.S. or Canada for sure. But you also like, said I, you I, looked more Asian when you were younger, right? So th- yeah, has that, has I, that shifted still, at all? I still didn't look full Asian when I was younger, but I, I think I did look more mixed but i mean even now when i go back to asia i i don't know i get more attention than being in in the u.s or canada so i don't i don't know what that's about but um yeah that that was i thought interesting yeah also it's guys are a little bit more forward in the u.s and maybe canada as well right when it comes to approaching women versus asia i don't know what hong kong and singapore is like to be honest but that's yeah, the I mean, I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's because I, I don't really leave my house much, but I, I never get approached randomly by people in the U.S. or Canada. Um, whereas that has happened in Asia, not just like randomly, you're a stranger on the street. Hey, let me stop you and get your number. But just if you're in a social situation, they would be more willing to express interest in like going really? on a date than as a candidate yeah and i'm not sure why huh you're like breaking all sorts of stereotypes in my head right now i would have thought yeah. the exact opposite that's interesting okay maybe it's just me though maybe i need to like get on the um western aesthetic sport i don't know <laughs> yeah for sure well one thing that i wanted to dig in with you is the kind of the shift in religion that you had i personally was born a catholic and mm-hmm. i it's weird to admit this, but when I was like 13, I was like infatuated with a girl and I ended up becoming Protestant for like two years or three years. And then after university, I just shifted into more, I guess, uh, agnostic perspectives. And I know you got an interesting journey around how you went from, uh, I think, Catholic to atheism and then back into, not well, not back, but to uh, evangelical Protestant 
what was that journey like from like the beginning and how, what are some of these shifts that happened that made you uh, converting to these different journeys? Sure. Well, I think when, you know, when I was growing up, um, I was like a Christmas Easter Catholic. Like those are the kind mm. of when religion was really a bigger part of my life. I had gone to Bible school or like Bible camp when I was younger, but it wasn't a huge part of my life or something that I really even thought of. Um, so, you know, I kind of grew up with some Catholic traditions and things like that. If someone would have asked me when I was like 12, I guess I would have said, oh, I'm Catholic uh, because that's I, what my parents were. But um, when I first kind of started becoming interested in actually thinking and talking about religion, I started reading people like Richard Dawkins and things like that, you know, the God delusion. And, um, you know, before before that, I had never really thought of like, well, is this in conflict with science or anything like that? But, you know, reading all of that stuff to me at the time that made sense. And, uh, you know, I was very much an empiricist and a materialist. So I, I thought, all right, yeah, atheism. And I was like one of those super cringy teenage atheists, you know, with the fedora tipping. I probably would have had one had a had I been an atheist in current year. But, yeah, I, I kind of stuck with that for a while. But then as I got even a little bit older, uh, my brother is really interested in philosophy. So he introduced me to some philosophers like Plato and Aristotle. Um, and things like the theory of forms and unmoved mover, they they sort of helped me imagine a world where, you know, science isn't everything because science can never really answer why, because it's not necessarily a scientific question right these um wanting to know these qualifiers the way i see it science it almost tells you how the system works but not really how it came to be or even you know for moral questions science really isn't the most useful thing to go off of because then you can lean towards too much utilitarianism which has been responsible for many many terrible things like eugenics and so you know i i kind of through that exploration became more of a deist you know without without subscribing to any particular religion, but maybe just thinking perhaps there is more to being than just the material, than just science, than just what we can see and touch in front of us. For Just and, to, sorry to cut you off, just for people that don't know, what's the difference between agnostic and theism? Sure. So I guess like a, a agnostic is kind of, um, and I, I don't know if this describes your specific agnosticism, but um, you know, acknowledging that we don't know everything and that that's okay. And there are probably some things that as humans, we will never fully understand, but not necessarily being an atheist where you can definitively say there is nothing, but also not subscribing to a particular uh, religion or, or, or worldview or anything like that. For me, um, the difference between agnosticism versus a deism is that I was more convicted that there was, um, you know, some creator or some mover. So I guess, you know, those annoying people who say like, oh, I'm spiritual, but not religious. Um, <laughs> the lazy, <laughs> it's like the most lazy perspective. I, I admit it. Like, it's yeah. like you're not in one like, stance or the other. It's just like, ah, it could happen. Something's out there. <laughs> you know, you can call it lazy. And I've heard like atheists especially rag on agnostics. But I think it's a valid thing. Like, I, I don't know, like, why be so firm in your conviction of yes or no? If like being firm in agnosticism is its own stance, mm. um, which I 
you know, I've gone through myself as well. And but, the, you know, with theism, it's it's the idea that, yeah, there probably is some unmoved mover, some creator force out there. But you're not, you know, say, saying like, yes, but it is uh, Jesus of the Bible or and yeah, Muhammad was his prophet and things like that. Um, so, you know, it was is actually quite a little bit later where I made the the transition from um, deism to specifically theism and Christianity, because, you know, from the almost platonic Aristotelian worldview that I had where, you know, this ultimate form of good must exist somewhere and somewhere there must also be this unmoved mover who started this whole reaction. To me, that fit the Christian worldview the most, especially when you you look at um, kind of the theology behind the atonement. It's the idea of trying to make up for humanity's imperfection through a perfect sacrifice. And to me, you know, the idea, I truly believe that for us to have any type of, I guess, input as to whether something is good or bad, there must be somewhere out there this total perfect vision of what is good. And, you know, to me, that is God, that is the creator. But, you know, the thing with that is having this divine standard of goodness, of perfection, it really illustrates how fallen and imperfect man is, um, which a lot of religion is based around specifically Abrahamic religions, but Christianity is really the only one that offers a solution to that imperfection. Hmm. And, <laughs> well, it's, 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 it's interesting for me, especially from, if you know, if you were a Protestant from the age that you were born and you continue to become and have that stance, maybe I wouldn't be as interested, but because of this journey that you've been on, you've intentionally decided to uh, shift course into this path. A lot of people, because of how their parents were raised, are just kind of put into this religion as I was and as many people are, and they just kind of stick through it, right? Without really having to think about what is the real purpose of it. But what I, what, what I found really interesting about your approach is, is just the, you've actually done the research, you've, you've looked at and, and really thought about the different perspectives. For me, at least, like the, the thing that didn't really resonate with me is is just I it felt a little bit strict for me in terms of like the the limitations and and some of the things that perhaps were also a little bit outdated and it, it, those were some of those things that I struggled with at least particularly in, in my teenage years and how have you thought about that has there been you know going from atheism to getting back into the religion especially in the world that we live now where obviously there's new testaments and stuff like that but did you feel that you feel like there's been some limitations or certain things that may not make sense in that world well i mean so especially i mean not only when i started college in the u.s not only was i going from like kind of strict asian upbringing to college in la but this was also sort of the time when i was really trying to embrace a Protestant lifestyle. Um, and so there was like a lot, there was like big culture shock there as well. Um, you know, I'm going to parties with my friends and I see people who are on all types of substances and, you know, who are doing things that Bible says you shouldn't do. And, you know, for me, I, I guess it's also part of a personality type thing. I'm someone who thrives on structure and things like that. So the the idea, and also just taking into account my reasons for embracing Christianity, those restrictions on behavior 
made perfect sense, right? Um, if there is this ultimate form of good and this objective moral stance, then surely there must be things that are objectively objectively uh, acceptable and objectively unacceptable. Um, so that was very easy for me to um, commit to once I had it in my mind that, you know, if if I think something is right, do I want to be the type of person who does it? Or sorry, if I don't think something is right, do I want to be the type of person who does it anyway, right? And I think there are, there are people out there who will look at things like um, promiscuous sex and drugs and think, I don't see a problem with it and I'm going to do it anyway, which in that world be makes sense. But there are also people, um, you know, kind of lukewarm Christians who will say, yeah, I don't think this is okay and I know why it's bad, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know, there's a difference there. And to me, those lukewarm people have never made sense, right? Because if you if you have convictions and you don't think it's, you can understand the rationality of why you shouldn't do it. Why are you still doing it? Like, is it a self-control issue? And for me, I wouldn't be able to, um, I guess, live with the guilt of having failed my own standards as well as any divine standard and still partake in that behavior. So, yeah. And I, I mean, even um, like I, I went to a Mormon university for a while. That's where I ended up finishing after my time at USC. I'm not Mormon, though, but they had a very they were even stricter. I mean, you're not allowed uh, like to wear anything above the knee. You're not even allowed like tea or coffee. Like they are really strict. And How did that, you even I, get there, though? How did you go oh, from where you were and you just decided to no, doesn't that yeah. just happen? Right. <laughs> Yeah, I ended up so I ended up um, part of my high school since we were moving around so much. I did through independent study and BYU has one of the best independent study catalogs out there. And um, after a while, I wanted to move from USC and change majors. I was at USC doing political science and screenwriting and I wanted to do more political science, Middle East studies. And I was looking up the best Arabic programs. BYU has one of the top ones. And since my independent study credits were already from there and I also got a scholarship. So it just like made sense. That was before I knew about Mormonism. I'm not sure I would have chosen that school if I like knew what I know now about it. But yeah, for for me in university, that was hard living by restrictions that I didn't see the justification for. Like I still don't think coffee and tea are moral wrongs. So that like if, you know, do you that, think that that's what, those are moral wrongs? I'm, I'm confused. You have to like Mormon, slow it down for Mormon. me. More, they think coffee. I don't know anything about it. So, like, what are the things that they teach you? Yeah. So, if you're if you're Mormon, you can't drink tea. You can't drink coffee. Um, oh, you can't drink any alcohol. Yeah. So you would be a bad Mormon right now. Um, you know, you can't wear anything above the knee. You can't wear anything form fitting. Was part of the honor code. Uh, you can't have someone from the opposite sex in your room. Like we're not even talking about like doing anything. You just literally cannot have them in your room. But I thought um, Mormons yes. are the ones that can have multiple wives. Yeah, yeah, they, but that you have to be married. <laughs> so it's like the <laughs> yeah. So it's like before that, though, super strict. And yeah, so that was when I was in a position where I had all of these guidelines that I didn't believe in, and that was that was challenging because it's like I don't think it's bad to have coffee. <laughs> Or even like, I don't drink, but I don't think it's wrong to have a sip of beer or, you know, have a beer with your dinner. So it was, that was hard for me. So how do they even, they must have some justifications of these rules, right? So like for, for people that are from the Jewish culture, they can't eat pig because pigs are known to have like, you know, from like the food chain, they're known yeah. to be like 
dirty animals. So for coffee and tea, where there's scientific benefits that you can prove, especially tea. Yes, like so, tea so is what, like a health thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so what I understand, part of it is obedience. You know, part of it is in their minds the fact that okay, our leaders have told us not to do this, and obedience is a virtue, so we can show our obedience and devotion by doing this. Um, another part of it is that they, I mean, you know, it's easy. They're also supposed to abstain from alcohol. Um, sorry, tobacco. So it's easy to okay, tobacco is not good for you. Um, with alcohol, there is scientific literature backing up the idea that it's not good for you, whether that is to the extent where you can't have it at all. Uh, you know, I'm not sure, but perhaps there's that argument that can be made that if there's not really benefits and, you know, you can risk addiction and going overboard, maybe just best to abstain at all uh, from anything. And um, yeah, I think for more like the soft, even some Mormons don't even drink caffeinated soft drinks. Um, I think the, the, the main takeaway there really is for obedience. Wow. Okay. Now, would you say that can be true for other religions like Christianity as well? Did you feel any of that? Or was that like a good um, enough limitation or, or not? I, would, I don't want to say limitation, but it's good enough. Um, I, don't, I can't find another word for it, but it's, it's, at least it's like a, it's not as extreme as Mormonism. Well, I think for, and I know, you know, it, it's, different for different branches of Christianity. Like one of the reasons why I could never be Catholic and why I'm, I'm not Catholic, my husband is Catholic, um, is because I do see Catholicism like that. There are a lot of things in the Catholic religion that I don't see in the Bible, um, that I don't see really any reasoning behind. And so it would be hard for me to buy into that religion wholeheartedly. One of the examples is why priests cannot marry. Um, you know, that's not in the Bible that someone who is, you know, um, a representative of the church cannot marry. It actually wasn't even instituted in the Catholic Church from the beginning. We know when and why it was instituted. It had to do with like um, land dealings within the church. And so for me, like why, you know, uh, that just seems very man-made and arbitrary. But if I look at the way that Christianity has kind of, I guess some would say restricted my life, um, I, I do see reasons beyond obedience for doing it. Um, you know, one of the things that the Bible teaches is um, sobriety. Right. And I think, you know, if we look at the consequences of alcohol and drug abuse, it is clear that there are reasons aside from Christianity for adhering to that. You know, we have straight edge movements that have nothing to do with Christianity, but still see the value in sobriety. Another uh, issue would maybe say um, like casual sex. There are now studies being done about how, you know, the, the number of previous sexual partners you've had as a woman actually does increase your likeliness to get a divorce once you are married. And, you know, as well as things like unplanned pregnancies and STDs as well, um, you know, having more promiscuous sex also increases your likeliness of being depressed, having anxiety issues and all of these other things. So, you know, when, when, and I'm someone who's somewhat of an empiricist myself, when I see that what's written in the Bible is actually uh, what we can see is beneficial through a secular lens. I don't have, I don't have a problem, you know, living my lifestyle in line with that. And I don't see it as just arbitrary and for obedience because I'm someone who like, because I said so doesn't really seem like a good reason to do something for me. Sure. Yeah. And, and I agree with all of these things. Uh, uh, there's certainly good parts about religion and, and it's, it's certainly proven uh, like I went through this 10 day solemn meditation trip 
called Vipassana and they were like teaching all of these elements and it certainly felt like a little bit like a religious thing to me but basically what I've done and, and what I try to do is I try to take parts that I believe in and I try to construct it into my own beliefs and I just wonder if people can do that without needing to wholeheartedly jump into the religious beliefs and take what is good from certain aspects and apply that to their lives without needing to completely dedicate into um, a religion, if they don't want to, at least. Well, I think there is something to that. I think that many religions have very positive aspects to it. And I think that, you know, there's nothing wrong with taking a teaching from a religion and applying it to your own life because it's beneficial, even if you don't maybe believe in the, I guess, core tenets of that religion. Um, and I, I don't think there's there's anything wrong with that. I know, you know, I have friends from different religious backgrounds and there will be like I know something I do like from Mormon culture is they have something called family home evening, where mm. at least once a week you get together with your family and you just spend time um, do an activity or something and you just bond together. And I think that's a wonderful thing to do. I'm not Mormon, but I, I really like the idea of that. I also like how their culture is very focused on family and, um, you know, how they have a, a a culture where they're encouraged as like, you know, college age people to go out and date with the purpose of getting married. So, you know, you're you have your eyes set on creating a family. I think all, those are all great things. And I don't think you need to believe in Joseph Smith uh, to want <laughs> to apply them to your life for sure. Yeah. Um, and then uh, obviously with with things like Christianity and other religions, there there's things that are, are taught uh, and beliefs that people have within that religion that are perhaps from a societal perspective might seem controversial today. So things like gay marriage, uh, you know, abortions and stuff like that. W what are your stances on that uh, as someone that is of Christian faith? And I think there's like two buckets of people that generally go from atheism into different religions is like they've already had these certain beliefs before they converted and it was more of like a confirmation bias where like, okay, these, this religion is something that I can already resonate with. And then there's people that, um, you know, for, kind of had to convert and they've completely changed their identity after getting into that religion. Like, where do you fall into that aspect? And I guess, how, what are your stances on things like gay marriage? Um, well, I think I've, I, from those two positions, I guess I would be somewhat in the middle. Um, when it comes to abortion, um, even before I was ever Christian, after learning about human development, um, abortion was not something that I felt comfortable with. And I know a lot of people who are not religious at all, but who are pro-life simply because, you know, scientifically it is it is a fact that life begins at conception and that an embryo is a unique set of DNA uh, distinct from the mother that can never be re-replicated. So I think there's a, there's enough there where it doesn't necessarily need to be a religious position. And I've done videos about the abortion debate before, and I never bring religion into it just because, you know, if you're someone who's Christian, you're trying to convince someone who's not Christian that abortion is wrong. Talking about it from a Christian perspective isn't going to mean much because they're not Christian. Uh, and that, that's besides the fact that there is tons and tons of reasons and research and scientific literature as to why a, you know, an embryo or a fetus is alive, is distinct that, you know, we don't really need to bring religion, I think, into that 
conversation to have a, a worthy debate. When it comes to gay marriage, gay marriage was something that I, I never really opposed from a government perspective. And I still don't because I think and what I'm learning more and more, especially when I when I got married, I had to do a, a marriage course to get married in the Catholic Church. Marriage from a biblical perspective is not what marriage is today, especially not, you know, like you go and sign at the courthouse, that type of marriage. Um, you know, where a lot of people when they say, oh, let's get married, it's more like, hey, let's have a public ceremony showing that we love each other and that we want to spend our lives together and also we'll have, you know, share legal say over assets. That is very different than what marriage is from a biblical perspective. I think from a biblical perspective, it's very, it's very clear that, you know, man and woman come together for the purpose of procreation before God. And that is something that is unique between a man and a woman. Um, that's not what society treats marriage as anymore, for better or worse. But, you know, in terms of a, you know, a, a civil type of union, recognizing that a gay couple has the same legal rights as a straight couple, I don't have a problem with that. Okay, so do you have gay friends that are married? That are married? No. Oh, actually, I guess I would call Dave Rubin a friend, but I definitely have gay single friends. Gotcha. Um, so Dave, for example, Dave's been on our show. I mean, mm -hmm. how, maybe not bring Dave into it because I know you guys are friends, but <laughs> let's say you're single friends. They decide to get married. I mean, so where, where is that divide? I mean, so you don't believe in the well, government I mean, aspect? I would see their marriage as no less legitimate than straight secular friends. Gotcha. So you wouldn't go to their wedding, basically, if they were to invite I you. Would go, I would go to their I would go to their wedding because you it's would. not it's not it's not a religious ceremony. These are two people who are basically telling the world we love each other that God has nothing to do with it in their minds. What really frustrates me, and this is, I guess, especially apparent in the Methodist church is when you try to redefine biblically what marriage is to fit the secular definition. Mm -hmm. um, I think that is something that is, is, is pretty clear is not okay if you claim to be a Christian. Um, but in terms of, and you know, it, this goes beyond the issue of gay marriage as well. You know, even the issue of divorce Right. Divorce is something, you know, it frustrates me seeing a lot of Christians kind of rail against gay marriage as if that's what's breaking the sanctity of marriage. But really, I mean, straight people were defiling its meaning way before this ever became an issue with things like divorce and having children out of wedlock. Um, so it, it's, it's the sanctity of marriage is a much bigger conversation than just, oh, can gay people participate in it? or not. And that's something that was really made apparent to me again, like in that marriage course, we did a, a whole unit of kind of like the sacrament of marriage of what exactly it means. And it's just it's so much more than secular culture, at least, you know, the difference between a secular marriage and a Christian marriage, very, very different, very different. Mm -hmm. And from the biblical perspective, let's say, you know, for what God intends for people of Christian faith, and or other religions, that are not for gay marriage, what is it about the differences between a man and woman getting married that is perhaps superior or that is fitting to that religion versus a man and a man and a woman and a woman? Well, I think if we, if we read what it says in scripture, the part of it is coming together for God, before God to form a new family with the, with procreation, 
right? So it really, really is. And we see that in nature as well. Like it's, you know, when, when animals even come together to form a family, you do have that male and the female aspect to it because that's just how it works biologically. Um, but now, of course, you know, when you say, oh, I'm getting married, it's no longer the same as saying I am pledging to start my family with this person and have these have children together. You have couples who get married with no intention of having children. So that's that's part of how marriage in a secular sense is not the same as it is in, you know, in a religious sense. Ne- never mind things like divorce. For a lot of people, marriage isn't even till death do us part. It's just until we maybe no longer feel like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of just like a step up from being it's like a more more long term boyfriend. Um, that's very, very different. And, you know, I think the biblical idea of marriage is 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 something that it's it's very rare to see in in today's culture. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just look at divorce rates. More and more people don't have children and all of that. So there's a lot of differences besides just gender that set it apart. Sure. Yeah. From so it's children. You're saying that's what it comes what down to the ability to yeah create children because some people might say, well, what if it turns out that you can't have you know children yourself? Um, you know the the intent to say before God like we are coming together, we are starting this family like for posterity with the goal of like raising children and things like that, like that's something. And there's that permanence as well. That is something that is not in line with the modern idea of marriage, like Mm -hmm. at at all. Yeah. I I guess I just wonder like why there has to be such a strictness to that. I mean, for example, you know, say there was these two couples and both of them have certainly very mal- um, histories, whether it's criminal histories or, you know, let's say, uh, just certain, certain things that if they were to have children, they would be bringing in p- potential harm into the world because of, you know, the certain genetic factors or whatever it might be, right? Certain histories. Can you say that is still technically better than a very, healthy-minded, uh, economically well, two gay but you're- couples adopting someone and perhaps creating a better life for someone that wouldn't have a home. But you're coming from this from a secular standpoint and saying that, like even like a Christian standpoint doesn't say that a straight couple is better than a gay couple. It's just that a straight couple is able to fit the mold to have that family, right? It's not mm-hmm. about better or worse. And I think there's still that that um, secular sense that marriage is about declaring your love in that. No one is saying that the love between like two gay people is less than the love between two straight people. But again, Christian biblical marriage is not just a confirmation of love, right? That's, that's, that's something that modern society has instilled in our head. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's, it's a, it's a completely different thing. And it's not to say that if you're, you know, getting married as a Christian, you shouldn't love your spouse because of course you do, but you have to realize that enter into that, entering into that covenant before God. Uh, it, it's, it's almost like saying like, why can't a girl scout join or why can't a girl join the boy scouts? It's because the boy scouts is for boys and doesn't mean that a girl can't be an awesome scout and do the same activities or whatever. But it's that this institution 
is for boys. Is the Girl Scout lesser than? No. Should she be banned from going to the forest at all? I definitely don't think so. But it's just not the same. Right. But when you're saying that you don't support gay marriage, you're technically banning uh, from your at least your own perspective. But did I did I say I don't support gay marriage? I have no problem with, you know, if you want to go to a courthouse, that's fine. What I support in the church is that I think that biblical marriages need to fit within the what is described within the Bible. And to me, that is a big difference. Sure, sure. And from like, I guess a devil's advocate would, would say that, you know, for, for from the Bible perspective, it was technically written by other humans, obviously from the perspective of what God would want. How, how would you... How would you counteract something like that? And uh, this is just from like a devil's advocate, obviously. Yeah, for sure. Well, that's something that we hear a lot, um, especially even from other Christians within with regard to the question of is homosexuality as a, as a, just a concept wrong as a practice. And that's something that I, I I don't take a stand on very much because I'm I'm not sure, you know, um, but when we look at the institution of marriage specifically, it's not like. Um, you know, with homosexuality, when Christians talk about it being wrong, there are like three verses, I think, uh, mostly from the Old Testament that they talk about. Um, so we can have that conversation for sure. But when it comes to the institution of marriage as a whole, it's a lot more than just three verses that have been picked and chosen. And we can talk about was, you know, when they say um, this, are they even referring to gay marriage or just this one particular act? Is there a translation issue? Like these are all things that I've heard in regard to the question of whether homosexuality itself mm-hmm. is wrong. And I think that is a very interesting conversation to have. But those same criticisms don't really apply to what marriage is, mm-hmm. right? Because it's not just uh we're, we're talking about a couple of lines of scriptures, right? Marriage as an institution has, you know, in the Catholic church and before that, the Jewish tradition, thousands and thousands of years talking about what it is, what it is not supported by many, many parts of the Bible. So it, it would be hard for me to wrap my head around it and still call myself a Christian if I were to believe that the Bible could be that wrong about this many things. Because I I acknowledge, you know, written by men, translation errors, whatever, perhaps some leeway on certain situations. But when we're talking about core tenets, it's a little bit harder to, you know, try and pick and choose that while still remaining a Christian. Right. Yeah. Translation is definitely a big topic around kind of. And understandably so. Right. And for people that have studied the Bible and try to interpret it based on, you know, the different translations from its origins, is it like pretty much like a hundred percent belief that there is no misinterpretation about homosexuality and gay marriage for the people that have generally studied it? Homosexuality and gay marriage are different things. Different things. Yes. Uh, yeah, they, they are different things. Like if we're talking, there are several parts of the Bible that do talk about, um, you know, things like sodomy, the homosexual act and, you know, not lying with a man as one does with a woman. And, you know, these are the areas where there are, there has been debate over translation issues. Right. Um, for example, it, you know, if we're talking about sodomy, like, did they mean like rape or something like that? Did they specifically mean same sex relations or does this apply to a man and woman as well? There is a debate over that. Um, you know, and if we also look at people have brought up the fact that, you know, Jesus, when he came, he doesn't talk about 
homosexuality at all. He does talk about marriage and adultery, but not about homosexuality. So can we say, should this issue be at the forefront of our religion? You know, what we're preaching the most if it's not even covered specifically in the Gospels. And I think that's all like, that's why I'm not a very strong on this issue because I feel like I don't have enough information and there is this debate on there. So that's why, you know, um, but when it comes to the issue of marriage specifically, um, you know, that, 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 that is something that is different than homosexuality. And again, like marriage is an institution in Christianity. It is a covenant. It is a sacrament. It is a promise. Um, it's very different than just loving someone or having a relationship with someone, right? Because you're not just, it's not just between you two. It is between God and your future children. So, you know, trying to separate those nowadays, I know it doesn't really make sense to people, but the Bible is quite clear on that. Sure, sure. Um, and do you feel, I know you're obviously about to have, or you're planning to have a newborn, I don't know exactly when the timeline is, but in a world where, you have children that are also growing up to, you know, obviously we have gender dysphoria now. All, there's a lot of things that are happening in a world that where that could happen. Do you feel like you would not have a change of heart in terms of your beliefs if your children were also gay or, 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 or by gender or whatever it might be? Yeah, well, for sure. I think when it comes to children, the most important thing is that I will love my children and do what is best for them and do everything I can to make sure that they are able to live a good life. Um, when it comes to whether I think I should redefine what a biblical marriage means in order to fit my, you know, the way that I personally feel, I think that is a slippery slope. Um, and, and someone who, who does like to I guess, to quote Ben Shapiro, put facts before feelings. I don't think I should shape my worldview based on what makes me feel the best. But again, like within my worldview, I think I would be totally capable of loving and cherishing a gay son or, you know, someone, a, a child who does have gender dysphoria, whatever that may be, um, and still love them and nourish them and want them to do the best in, in their life that they possibly can. Sure, sure. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not about changing the, the the pure definition of it. I guess is is because of the fact that you have exper you know explore different uh, aspects of religion and atheism as well. I, I was curious to know if 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 that is something that obviously you can't change the beliefs of Christianity, but if you would be somewhere around the hybrid uh, or, or maybe convert back into atheism or, or agnosticism if if that was something to be happened. I, I guess I'm curious to know your stance on that. Well, I guess like, it, you know, if, if I at one point decide that, um, you know, the Bible doesn't make sense because I, you know, I've changed my mind on like what what exactly an ultimate morality will look like, that's one thing. But I think if there's any time, any point of contention where I, I'm still a Christian, I still believe in it, but on this one issue, I don't like what the Bible says. Even if I don't like it, I am more willing to concede to what the Bible says, just because I know as humans, our understanding, our interpretation uh, of what is right and wrong is flawed. That's a, you know, I'm a Calvinist, so that's a huge part of my belief system as well. Um, I, I think it's better to err on the side of caution and err on the side of what has been proven to uphold families and civilizations and 
submit to what the Bible says rather than trying to use my own flawed reasoning. I'm in a position where I don't have that. Uh, you know, I don't have cognitive dissonance on any issue. But if that were to arise, you know, if I were to have a change of heart, uh, I would hope that a change of heart doesn't automatically a change mean a change of brain or head or reasoning. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And, and obviously I'm asking all these questions just because I'm genuinely curious coming from yeah. my own journey. And I'm sure a lot of people are dealing with it. So I appreciate you answering these. Um, to close off, Lauren, I, you know, I think one of the things that you're talking about kind of the sense of purpose and identity, obviously there's a lot of people that are lost today in terms of what their beliefs are, whether it's you know the religion or whether it's what stuff that's happening around the world. Why do you think so many people are lost and how would you advise someone that is perhaps in their early 20s um, or mid-20s or 30s? Who knows? People are lost. There's no age limit to being lost. Mm -hmm. How would you advise someone to kind of help them find themselves a little bit more? Well, I would say find purpose and find meaning. Um, you know, in the Republic, it talks about justice happening when everything and everyone is serving its purpose. And so for me, I find I have the most meaning and I'm the happiest when I am fulfilling what I see to be my purpose. So that means, you know, being a good wife, being a good daughter and being good at my job and being, you know, a good Christian. If I can fulfill my roles that I've been given responsibly and well, that to me brings happiness and purpose. And I think for a lot of people, like that sense has it's kind of missing. We no longer know what we're supposed to do, what is meaning anymore. Um, and I, you know, I would advise anyone who's, who's feeling lost to also look at Jordan B. Peterson's work. Cause he, he is really great, but he talks about the same sorts of things, right? Um, improve yourself before you, you look outward and start complaining about what's wrong with the world and all of that. With that being said, though, there are things in society that I think we could be doing a lot better to help people. I think the fact that we've, you know, really broken down family ties, as well as now with like COVID and everything, even like friendship ties, we can't see anybody. We're, we're atomized. That can be very, very discouraging. Um, you know, seek out those connections. Uh, you, you, even if it's not a romantic one, even just friendship can go a long way in giving you, you know, a sense of purpose because then that's someone who you know, you, you want to do good for, to hold yourself accountable for being a good friend. Um, you know, and it, it's the same with any of your other areas, whether that's in your work, do, do well at your work, do well in your studies, be the best that you can be in all of these different things. And I think for a lot of people, they will, they will find, find meaning in that. And, um, I would also say, don't neglect, you know, the, I don't even want to say spiritual side of this, because even if you're an atheist, I think there is, you know, there is a lot of philosophy and things that you could look into that might train your mind to things that are, aren't material, but that are still very important for us as humans mm -hmm. to be in tune with if we want to feel like we're, I, I guess, a well-rounded person. Uh, you know, it's, it's not just enough to live in the material world. Our brain and our hearts need more than that. Yeah, you've you read a lot of philosophy. So what are some of the philosophers that you recommend people to study are there books particularly like stoicism obviously is kind of regaining this this mm. new life now um what do you recommend for sure well um i know one of my friends lydia she's she's a stoic and that stoicism is really interesting i like plato 
Plato and Aristotle a lot when it comes to, I guess, uh, morality, right versus wrong nature of man. The Republic is very interesting, but uh, I'm not going to say I endorse the Republic as a political philosophy because that's somewhat totalitarian. But, you know, in terms of just like moral wanderings, it's very, very interesting. Um, I think Leviathan is is a good read as well. Uh, if you haven't read uh, Wealth of Nations, I encourage you to do that. You know, if you're coming from it, the more political or economic perspective of things and actually something that, where is it? Oh yeah. This, uh, Hannah Arendt, The Origins of Totalitarianism. Unfortunately, this is very, um, very topical for the time that we're living in because she talks about, you know, the totalitarian state. One of the things that it does is it chips away at the connections and loyalties you have to your friends and to your family. It's called atomization so that you're more and more just reliant on the state. Um, mm. And we saw that in, in the Soviet Union, uh, you know, in communist China, children were encouraged to rat out their parents and things like that. Um, so it's it's really interesting. And of course, you know, 1984 is, is another example of of that, maybe um, where you can kind of see the similarities to what we're living through right now. Beautiful. Well, we'll have all those in the link shows, uh, show notes. Lauren, thanks so much. Where can people learn more about you? And I know you've got multiple different channels, so feel free to let them know what's what's top of mind. Sure. Um, so if you're interested in the political videos that I do, you can find me uh, just by searching Lauren Chen on YouTube. Uh, those videos are also I'm trying to be everywhere right now just because social media is it's been really unstable. Um, <laughs> Facebook, BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble and Minds. My God. Yeah, I was, yeah, I know. It's such a nightmare to upload to all these different platforms. But yeah, uh, you can find the political videos on those platforms. And if you're interested in like pop culture, movies and stuff like that, I also have a channel on YouTube called Mediaholic. And it's actually it's just like movie reviews and entertainment news. It's a lot lighter than what we've been discussing in this, <laughs> in this conversation. <laughs> for sure. For sure. Well, thanks so much, Lauren. I really appreciate you having uh, the time to come on. And uh, thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the show. Hope you really enjoyed our guest today and that you took one thing valuable from our conversation. If you haven't already, I would love it if you could leave a quick rating or review on whichever network you're listening to the show and share this episode with one friend if you found it valuable. And if it's something that a friend, a family member, or just someone that you care about could find a little bit of insight from what you learned today. All right. Ciao.